Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Oh, we're starting off with Patreon supporters. Yeah, I, I made Desi. I'm making Desi do it this uh, week. So let's start off by thanking our lovely patrons. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene, where we have extra content that you cannot get anywhere else but on Patreon. Yeah. Hundreds of episodes that you've never heard before, most likely. And uh, some of them are quite disgusting. And if that's what you're into, there's a lot of variety going on over there. Uh, So all of these people did that this past week, and I'm sure they're living it up on Patreon. (laughs) I have heard it is worth the $5 a month. I have Uh, heard that. It's good. So we have Tristan, Susie, Natalie, Sandra, Victor, Mercedes, Mitch, Stephanie, Karen, Jessica, Sharar, Fran, Jen, Stacy. Jen with another N, Sherilyn, Robbie, Rachel, Mary, Katie, Junkyard Honey, Shannon, Whitney, Jai, Nina, Ramya, John, and Stephanie. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. All right, Desi, this is part two of Movie versus Reality Titanic. Yeah. My main sources for this episode are The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic, and the End of the Edwardian Era by Gareth Russell, and another book called On a Sea of Glass, The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic by J. Kent Layton, Tad Fitch, and Bill Wormstedt. Let's just get started. Okay. We're In this episode, we're going to be focusing primarily on the life and experience on the Titanic of one of the notable first-class passengers. Okay. So here we go. (laughs) (laughs) On April 10th, 1912, 22-year-old American actress Dorothy Gibson boarded the Titanic with her mother after vacationing in Europe. Dorothy was one of the Titanic's many notable first-class passengers. The young starlet took took in a salary that rivaled Mary Pickford's. Whoa. She was one of the highest paid performers of her day, but her wealth was still considerably less than many of the other first-class passengers on board. Dorothy and her mother shared the cheapest first-class cabin on the ship. Now, as we talked about last week, that was still probably a very nice cabin, considering that the second-class cabins aboard the Titanic were similar to first-class cabins on other ships. But they did have... The cheapest. The cheapest. But this just goes to show just how wealthy so so many of these other first class. And you're still getting all the same amenities as a first class. Your room's just a little smaller, probably. You still get that gym with the electric camels. (laughs) What, What more could you want? I mean, come on. Dorothy and her mother were next to the room of the maid of Noelle Leslie, who was the Countess of Roths. Ooh. Dorothy was born May 17, 1899 in Hoboken, New Jersey, into a middle-class family. Her father died when she was very young, and her mother remarried a man named Leonard Gibson a few years later. Dorothy would adopt his surname. Dorothy began performing at a young age, her first love being singing. The Gibsons later moved to New York, and after appearing in a number of vaudeville productions, Dorothy made her Broadway debut at the age of 16. Dorothy's performance in The Dairy Maids was given rave reviews. Following this performance, she spent the next few years on a whirlwind schedule of tours. In February of 1910, she married George Battier, a pharmacist from Tennessee that she had been dating for a few years. But the marriage didn't last long. They split up that summer. 
Soon after, she was approached by the king of magazine covers, an illustrator named Harrison Fisher, who wanted to paint her. He was the successor to Charles Dana Gibson. Okay. So it's sort of that... That look. Yeah. Dorothy's portrait would go on to appear on the covers of several magazines, including Cosmopolitan and Ladies Home Journal. In 1911, Dorothy got a job with the film studio IMP. Her roles were very small, and she was basically just a glorified extra. But her next big break in the film business would come later that year when she signed with the Paris-based studio Eclair. Eclair had just set up a studio in New Jersey. Now, at this time, the movie business was still primarily operating on the East Coast. Right. Dorothy lit up the screen in her performance in the historical drama Hands Across the Sea. In October of 1911, Dorothy attended the Motion Picture Distributing and Sales Company Ball. It was here that she met 41-year-old Jules Brulatore, one of the Eclair's producers. Originally from New Orleans, Brulatore would go on to become a very important figure in American silent films. Upon first meeting him, Dorothy was smitten. She recalled that it was, quote, the kind of immediate acquaintance where no one else exists. Now, it's unclear if Dorothy was aware at the time of Brulatore's shady reputation, but nevertheless, the pair started up a romance, meeting up at various hotels to have sex. The problem problem was that Jules Brulatore was married. Oh. Mrs. Clara Brulatore was not at the ball that evening that they had that they met. Yeah. She was at home with the kids. Ugh. And he's hitting on this young actress. Yeah. He's like, work for you, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you some cream. I'll fill you up. That's probably what he said. I mean, she was smitten. She's young, so maybe she hasn't heard many good pickup lines before. Uh, Also adding to the problem was that Dorothy was still legally married to George. Oh. So they had just like split up. Right. But they weren't officially divorced yet. When Dorothy's mother learned of the affair, she thought it was a great idea. Oh. She's like, Dorothy, Jules is a very wealthy, influential man. Well, for her career. Yes. Although it could backfire. I mean, it's a right. risk. Yeah. But it worked out for Dorothy in the end. Dorothy and Jules only grew closer while working on her next film, Miss Masquerader. Ooh. It was at this time when she filed for divorce from her husband. Brulator, of course, swore that he would too. He said, I'll yeah. file for, for divorce. Just, from, uh, yeah. From my wife. Just wait one more month. The kids are teething. the thing is i think his kids were like in their teens oh they're older they're not even like babies okay i assume they were babies because she had to stay home with them or whatever yeah she was just home with the kids um but of course he didn't yeah but he did keep saying that to her of course i'm gonna divorce my wife tale as old as time (laughs) come on we've heard this in these stories before now the film that they made Uh, earned Dorothy Gibson more rave reviews, and she went on to star in several more Eclair films the rest of that year and and into early 1912. Now, at the time, all these films are like eight minutes long. Yeah. So I was like reading this. I'm like, damn, she made like 10 movies in one year. Look, the milkmaiders didn't have (laughs) that much of a story. (laughs) The milkmaid. Mommy milkers. Mommy milkers. It's just for dirty old men back then, film. <laughs> just want to see some girls in milkmaid outfits squirting milk. Going, ooh, ooh, the cows are coming home. <laughs> Daddy's mad we let the pen open. We're not fooled. <laughs> and I've watched some of these silent films from this era. From They must have been impressive when there was nothing not, <laughs> that came before. They're not great, Desi. Yeah. They're not great. Uh, okay. So <laughs> she was also exhausted though. I mean, even though these films are like eight to 10 minutes long, it's still, she's working nonstop basically. And she's also exhausted just over the fact that her boyfriend, Jules still hasn't divorced his wife. That's a nonstop stress factor. <laughs> she's very stressed out, Desi. In fact, Jules showed up to a party 
that Dorothy was throwing with his wife as his date. Oh, my God. And she was like, how dare you bring your wife? To add insult to injury, the reviews of her performance in her latest film, Brooms and Dustpans, was was not good. I mean, that seems like a real winner to me. (laughs) What is she, sweeping? It's, Who doesn't want honestly, to... <laughs> it's probably just her like sweeping kind of sped up and some guy with a mustache comes in and is like, I no, love you. Yeah, yeah, I love you. And then he hands her a dustpan. Yeah. Here, and she's here like, you go. my hero. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, Dorothy's health had declined as a result of her stress and she just wanted a break. Her boss at the studio, Harry Raver, was like, look, you're going to film three more movies and then you can take a break. <laughs> Damn. So she filmed The Easter Bonnet, The Revenge of the Silk Masks. <laughs> that sounds interesting, yeah. actually, of all of them. <laughs> Do they come to life? I have no idea. And a movie called The Lucky Holdup. Then Harry Raver was like, mm, let's do another one. Wow. So that was four films she had to do. Bang out. Before she could go on her vacation. Before she got on a relaxing vacation on the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> This film, the fourth film, was uh, a version of the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. This is probably oh, that's probably so they're the, really pushing the artistic uh, envelope there. I think that's probably the most interesting film she probably made. Yeah. When she was done with that, she was finally able to take off on her vacation with her mother. They had plans to travel across Europe and then to Egypt. Dorothy planned to be away from the states for the next several months. While in Genoa, Italy, Dorothy was pleased to receive a telegram from her secret lover, Jules Brulator. He wanted her to cut her trip short so that she could return to the States and make a new movie. She's fucking batshit crazy in love with him, so she agrees. And so she left Italy early. Yeah. Doesn't go to Egypt. And she starts making her way via train through France, where she stopped in Paris for some shopping. You gotta. (laughs) I mean, really. Next, Dorothy and her mother headed to Cherbourg, which is a city on the coast of northern France, where they had a ticket to board the Titanic back to the States. Hmm. This was the second stop on the Titanic's route. The ship had left from Southampton, England, other famous passengers who boarded at the Cherbourg port included the Astors and the unsinkable Molly Brown. The Titanic would then stop to pick up passengers in Queenstown, Ireland, before making its final departure to New York. Sunday, April 14th, 1912, was a moonless night illuminated only by the many stars above. Dorothy and her mother dined in the first-class dining saloon where they enjoyed another fabulous multi-course meal. The main dining room was packed that night. Among the guests that evening were Thomas Andrews, the Countess of Roths, Ida Strauss, and Jack Thayer. Also in attendance was 36-year-old Eleanor Cassabier and the ship's purser, Hugh McElroy. Eleanor was traveling home to New York, and it sounds like she was a real bitch. Her first day on the ship, she became irritated while waiting in line to speak with the purser in his office. Eleanor turned to the passenger behind her and made a remark about the passenger who was standing in front of her. She said, I hope I don't get put next to that Jew. Whoa. The Jew in question was a 30-year-old guy named Benjamin Foreman who was traveling home to Albany. He heard her. Okay. Say, I don't think she was very discreet. Yeah. He's standing right in front of her. She stage whispered. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The guy behind was over like, I'm not getting involved. I'm just standing on line, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Later during their journey, Eleanor would ask Benjamin if he'd like to go for a walk on the promenade, to which Benjamin replied with a laugh and said, I thought you didn't like Jews. Good for him. She was really embarrassed. Nevertheless, he had a coffee with her in the lounge that day where they sat and talked and she presumably forgave him for being Jewish. (laughs) Eleanor would survive the sinking of the Titanic. Benjamin tragically did not. See, that's fucked up. I agree. Yeah. Eleanor had been the subject of mockery on the Titanic by the other first class passengers based on what she wore to dinner. Oh. She always wore her afternoon clothes. 
Oh, like, like too are, casual or? Yeah, it was like those are daytime pastels, uh, caught maybe not like wools and cottons. I right. don't know. She wasn't wearing satins and silks. Yeah. She wasn't wearing an evening like gown. evening stuff, yeah. People were wearing opera length gloves to dinner. Right. Jewels. And she was wearing her deck clothes. And then she's like, maybe that's how she started relating to the Jew. What she's the like, fuck? She does <laughs> No, I, mean, I meant like she's like I'm feeling marginalized oh. too. She's like, see, it does it doesn't feel good to be judged because <laughs> I dress like shit yeah. at dinner time and people don't. I don't mean me. that he didn't dress well. He probably dressed very well. Yes. So, <laughs> um, but on this night, on April 14th, she was dressed to the nines, wearing a white lace gown and an ermine stole and lots and lots of jewels. Wow. Thomas Andrews noticed her change in appearance and said, now that's the way a lady should look. Is she attractive? Like young? She's 36. Oh, okay. So she's... She's kind of... She's not... I, for some reason, I pictured her old, like an old biddy. I saw a picture of her. Like, I don't think she's that hot. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> 36. <laughs> It's pretty old back then. <laughs> oh, back then. Yeah, to not be married, right? I mean... Well, she sounds like a real piece of work. Yeah. So who knows why she wasn't married. After dinner, Dorothy Gibson and her mother, Pauline, headed for the lounge to play bridge. Their bridge partners that night were 28-year-old stockbroker William Sloper from Connecticut and 34-year-old Frederick Seward, a lawyer from Frederick New York. Frederick Seward? Oh, C- C- yeah. S- oh. S- I thought you said his name was C-word, like cunt. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? His name was cunt and you're not saying it? <laughs> Just because we had so many butts and dicks. Yeah. So I was like, Rachel's trying to be um, more professional. <laughs> Frederick C-word, a lawyer from New York. These are their bridge partners. Okay. Many of the ship's passengers were already in bed when the lounge steward approached the group at 11.30 p.m. and told them to wrap up their bridge game as the lounge was closing. According to William Sloper, he had just said goodnight to Dorothy and her mother when he was heading downstairs to his cabin. It was 11.40 p.m. when he felt what he described as a, quote, lurch and a creaking. Dorothy and her mother were presumably heading back to their room as well when the ship struck the iceberg. (sighs) Dorothy and her mom went upstairs to the grand staircase on A deck, where she met up again with William, who had flagged down some of the ship's stewards. According to William, the stewards, quote, assured everyone who asked them that the watertight bulkheads were closed and that while there was a hole in her, she could not possibly sink. And many who had got out of bed to ascertain the trouble returned satisfied. How? (laughs) Would you be going back to sleep? Absolutely not. Uh, Yeah. Though many aboard the ship did take the steward's words of comfort to heart, Dorothy was panicked from jump. Yeah. She says that she stopped several different people coming up from the lower decks to ask if they were in danger. Like she asked like everyone, just people, anyone who was coming from upstairs. She's like, like, do you know what's going on? Yeah. What's happening? I want more info. What's going on down there? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One of the people she stopped to ask was Thomas Andrews, who was seen offering unusually short answers to the other passengers who stopped to ask him what was going on. Dorothy recalled him looking sick. First-class passenger Albert Dick, who spoke with... (laughs) Wait, did we talk about Albert Dick last week? We talked about William Dick. Okay. So this is a different Different Dick. Dick. Okay. First-class passenger Albert Dick who spoke with Andrews at this time, said the ship's designer told him and his wife, quote, there is no cause for any excitement. All of you get what you can in the way of clothes and come on the deck as soon as you can. She is torn to bits below, but she will not sink if her after bulkheads hold. Dorothy stopped a crew member who told her that the squash court down below was flooding with water. (gasps) By this point, passengers were being asked by crew members to dress warmly and put on a life jacket and head up to the top deck. Andrews urged members of the crew to put their life jackets on as to set an example for the passengers. Several passengers had a difficult time locating their life jackets as there were no notices on anyone's cabin doors. Oh, shit. Being like, your life jackets are are located here. Yeah. The rush to set sail ended up like 
the rush to set sail back in Southampton left all these notices behind and they were never taped, oh, like put on the doors I see. instructing people where their life jackets were and they probably like started driving away in the boat and were like, eh, it's probably fine. Yeah, and, and like when they gave the announcements, no one ever pays attention right, to no. those things. <laughs> Please. <laughs> the life jackets were located either under the bed or on top of the wardrobes. The countess layered her life jacket over her fur coat and put on her most precious piece of jewelry, which was a strand of pearls from the 16th century, while Ida Strauss took with her only a few pieces of sentimental jewels, including the wedding and engagement ring she was wearing. Other first-class passengers went to the purser's office to request the jewelry that they had stored in the safe. At this point, the temperature outside was just below freezing. First-class passengers were allowed to wait in the lounge while they awaited further instructions. They fully reopened the lounge at this point and brought out the fucking band oh, right. to play inside the lounge. They were playing waltzes and ragtime music. There was coffee and tea and brandy being served, and it was like basically a party. Yeah. Publisher Henry Harper was in the lounge with his Pekingese dog. He said that the scene was, quote, Rather like a stupid picnic where you don't know anybody and wonder how soon you can get away from such a bothersome place. He's with his dog? Yeah. Did the dog get on a life <laughs> Several small dogs were aboard the Titanic, like from first, first class passengers. So right. Like, I have to bring my dog. Yeah. Some of them made it. Some of them didn't. Aww. Now, there was a cat on board, <gasps> not... There was a cat who worked on the ships. <laughs> he, he worked. He, was, he, got, he, was, he got hired. <laughs> there was a cat. We don't know if the cat was aboard the Titanic when after it sailed, but this cat was known to work on the Olympic to catch I rats see. and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, And legend has it that the cat was going to work on the Titanic, but was <laughs> he called in sick that day? <laughs> <laughs> but the cat who who was a girl had a premonition and took her kittens one by one off the ship. Oh. Like the day the day they were about to leave. She's like later suckers. <laughs> <laughs> I read this story and I want to find out more information about it. I believe it. it 100%. Cats know. Yeah. They fucking know weird shit. Yeah. Okay. She's like those rivets aren't going to hold. <laughs> Helen Churchill Candy was also in the lounge, and she described it as, quote, a fancy dress ball in Dante's hell. Wow. I mean, I'm sure there are people who were like, this is absurd. Like, you're telling us to put on our... It's like like when you do a fire drill, you're like, really? We have to go all the way down? You know what I mean? Like, it always seems absurd to go through the protocols. I think I was thinking on the other hand of that where it's like, I think people thought it was absurd because, like, we just hit a fuck. Like, the ship might sink. Oh, and, I see what you're and saying. And we're having a fucking party. I think it's a mixture of people not realizing how serious it is, though. I agree. And some people probably are more frantic and like, "What are you doing?" Right. Uh, but at the same time, what are you supposed to do? Run around with your screaming? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not going to help either. I think it's a, a joke that the band played, but at the same time, I think it was smart to keep people calm. Maybe. Yeah. I mean... There's look, nothing that's going to help in that situation. <laughs> that is true. I mean, yeah. the brandy was smart, too, probably. Yeah. Warm them up, at least. Get them get, drunk. Get, them, <laughs> get them loose. Yeah. Though many in the lounge were unaware of the gravity of the situation, the knowledge of the flooded squash court was what probably lit a fire under Dorothy's ass to get off the ship as soon as possible. She just happened to hear... So like, she just happened to be in the right place at the right time when the news broke, basically. And it wasn't like public news. It was like she talked to one specific crew member right. who told her that the squash court down below was flooding. And she's like, well, that doesn't sound good. Yeah. So she's like Cassandra. Like she knows all this wild information and is probably frantic about it, but no one else is. Like, right. Yeah. Wait, Cassandra? Yeah, from mythology. Oh. She was always oh. like screaming prophecies, but no one believed her. Right. I was yeah. like, is that a housewife? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I have to make this correction. Okay. Because the other day you said the rotten in Denmark, 
quote was from Macbeth, but it's from Hamlet. Oh, I, it was right. driving me crazy. I literally was thinking of that when I went to sleep. I was like, well, I, Macbeth is Scotland. Yeah. Macbeth it was is- driving me crazy because I was like, if I get one comment from someone correcting me, I'm going to lose it because I actually know that. Do you know? I'm like, I'm a dumb bitch all the time, but I know that one piece of information. I knew, I knew that was from Hamlet too. And when, when you I, said it, I just was I like, said, yeah. But when I said Macbeth, when the words came out of my mouth, I was like, wait, Macbeth takes place in Scotland. That's I not- know. When you said it, I knew it was wrong, too. But I also just agreed because I think we were just in the middle of something. Well, great. Only okay, 50, sorry. Only 50 people heard that last night. But now, however okay. many. Okay. Well, now you guys know. We know. Now you know that I'm an idiot in case you haven't learned that <laughs> thus far. In case you and you dragged me down with you. In case, <laughs> in case you weren't fucking clear. Okay, as we were saying, though many in the lounge were unaware of the gravity of the situation, the knowledge about the flooded squash court made Dorothy afraid. So she ran down to her room with her mother to get warmer clothes. Dorothy threw a cardigan over her evening gown. The ladies then met back up with their bridge partners, William and Frederick, who had stayed with the two women this whole time. Hmm. William recalled when Dorothy got into the first lifeboat that left the ship, lifeboat number seven on the starboard side. Quote, Miss Gibson, who was now in a state of high nervous excitement, made for the first boat, and for fear that she might misstep or jump, I kept hold of her arm, and I remember I tried to keep her quiet by saying, keep a stiff upper lip. When the officers in charge of the first boat motioned for us to step in, she stepped forward with her mother and the gentleman that had been playing cards with us, and I helped them into the boat and followed after them. People sort of hung back at this time. Now, the lifeboat, which had a capacity for 65, was filled with 28 people before being lowered (gasps) into the sea. Manning the lifeboats on the starboard side was First Officer William Murdoch, The famous refrain of women and children first when it came to the filling of the lifeboats belies the fact that the two men got on so easily with Dorothy and her mother. Yeah. But the reality was that this was not unusual given that the women and children order changed throughout the night. And Officer Murdoch was also a lot more lax about this order in general. Was that a common order... In general, for every ship or for the Titanic? Is that where it started? I have no clue. I mean, it really was a thing on the Titanic, but it wasn't like constant throughout the night. This was early on in the night. Right. Uh, This was the first lifeboat. That they didn't even fill. They didn't even fill it. So this is what uh, Officer Murdoch, he said that he asked if anyone else wanted to get on board this lifeboat, but no one did. I'm sure at that point, everyone's like, I don't want to go into the sea. Yeah. I'm on this safe big ship, <laughs> right? Like- right. So among those who declined to get in the boat was John Astor and his wife, Madeline. John was concerned about getting on the lifeboat because his wife was pregnant. Oh. We talked about Madeline and John Astor right. last episode a little bit. He said, we are safer on board the ship than in that little boat. Yeah. The couple headed downstairs to the gym where John cut open his life jacket to show his wife that it was all filled with cork. That's, well, that's what they filled them with. It floats. but it- <laughs> I know, but why did he cut his life jacket open? <laughs> he did not make it off the ship. Yeah. Among Dorothy, her mother, and her bridge playing guys on Lifeboat 7 was New York socialite Margaret Hayes and her Pomeranian BB. So another dog that made it <laughs> off the ship. As the boat hit the water, Dorothy's ankles were soaked with freezing water. The drainage hole hadn't been plugged up before its descent. Oh, my God. The plug had been removed to prevent rainwater collecting in the boat and damaging the wood, and somebody forgot to put the plug plug back in. Boy, they're real uh, (laughs) incompetent. (laughs) The passengers on the boat had to MacGyver a plug with various items, including Dorothy's own stockings. Okay, (laughs) You were going to say the Pomeranian. Oh, my God, Desi. Yeah, Including they, Dorothy's own Pomeranian. <laughs> stick the dog in there. It's fluffy. William Sloper offered Dorothy his coat, and she kissed him. 80 minutes later, William was becoming slightly annoyed with the young starlet. Oh. Later remarking, quote, Every passenger seemed to have taken a firm grip on his nerves, except for Dorothy Gibson, who had become quite hysterical. I mean, she did get everyone on that boat. (laughs) (laughs) 
At this point, Dorothy was crying that she would never be able to drive her car again. Okay, that's embarrassing. Yeah. Jules Brulatore had gifted her with this cute little gray automobile with pastel interiors. Wait, was Jules on the boat? No. Oh, okay. He wasn't. Remember he telegrammed her from Europe? I thought he telegrammed her to meet him to go back on the Titanic together. No, to to go... To go back to New to York America. To the picture. He's like, come got back it, got early. It. So Jules is why she ended up on the Titanic. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> this guy's no good He's for you. He's trouble. He is trouble. That's, that's a red flag. When, <laughs> when he sent you on a Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> so Dorothy was crying that she wouldn't be able to drive her little automobile. I mean, it's 1912. I don't know how good that car is anyway. Probably, probably very sounds slow. like shit. <laughs> Really loud. Yeah. You can't have a scarf on wearing no. it. It's like all open. You have to wear those ugly ass goggles. Ugh, seriously. Did they wear those when they were driving? That you had to because there was no windshield. <laughs> <laughs> That's my. It's like a cardboard box. It's basically a tin can. Yeah. Um, I would you not. You could wa- cut the metal of that car, car with like a knife. Probably. Like- <laughs> but she really wanted to go and she was crying to everyone who would listen on that lifeboat. No I'm- one wants to hear that. When they're on a life, people are dying, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. At 2.20 a.m., the Titanic disappeared into the sea. Dorothy later told a newspaper, I will never forget that terrible cry that rang out from people who were thrown into the sea and others who were afraid for their loved ones. She watched as a green cushion from the lounge where she had been playing bridge only a few hours earlier floated by. 
According to George Hogg, who was one of the Titanic's lookout men who was also in charge of lifeboat number seven, he urged the passengers to go back and rescue survivors who had fallen into the sea that didn't make it into the lifeboats. When they had room. Yes, they had room. Boat seven wasn't even half full. But none of the passengers agreed to this on board, including Dorothy. This wasn't the only lifeboat that didn't go back for survivors. Many were frightened of the suction of the large ship pulling them down or of the desperate and panicked survivors swarming the boats. Yeah. Some lifeboats did go back and rescue passengers. But that's hard because it's like, who do you pick? Right? I guess, yeah. I mean... Because other you can pick maybe five people, let's say, right? And there's thirty people. Yeah, it's so like, it, it wasn't every boat that went back, right? Like there was just, I mean, I feel like there was like just as many. We'll talk more about the actual right. disaster uh-huh. and the intricacies of it next week. But yes, uh, Dorothy's boat did not go back for survivors. For the next two hours, Dorothy and the other passengers aboard her lifeboat sat in silence and darkness. The RMS Carpathia reached the disaster site at 4 a.m. For the next few hours, the survivors of the Titanic were loaded onto the steamship. Dorothy claimed that she slept for 26 hours upon her rescue. While on the ship, she wanted desperately to send a telegram to Jules. The Carpathia's telegram officer was obviously swamped with incoming and outgoing messages. We're like, we don't care about your fucking boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) President Taft's incoming telegram was, of course, given the most importance, like, oh, the president's on yeah. the horn, we got to deal with this. He wanted to know the status of his military aide, Archibald Butt. <laughs> <laughs> so I forgot that he was important. But did not survive. Oh. Well, so. I don't know if he was a good guy or not. That's true. Look, I didn't look into him. No. He just has a funny name. Dorothy received a message from Jules that read, Quote, will be worried to death till I hear from you. What awful agony. Dorothy replied to him that she was safe and on the Carpathia. Dorothy would arrive with the rest of the survivors in New York on April 18th. It was pouring rain. Dorothy and her mother were greeted at the dock by her stepfather, Leonard. She then had dinner with her parents and some friends, including her agent. Later that night, she met up with Jules Brulator, who gave her a diamond engagement ring. (sighs) He told her he was finally ready to divorce his wife. Wow. Dorothy gave several interviews to a variety of publications, including the New York Sun, Billboard, Moving Picture News, and Variety. Everyone wanted to talk to this uh, actress who had had survived the Titanic. Her recounted tales of surviving the disaster were dramatized at times. She erroneously stated that she had stayed on the ship much longer than she actually did. In one interview, she called the crew members wretched (gasps) and that they had a, quote, deplorable lack of discipline. Damn. I feel like that's kind of rude. I mean, what's what's the point of that? Especially if it's a lie. Or they're all scared too. I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's mean. Yeah. She made herself out to be way more of a hero yeah, I think she that's what's was. gross about it because it's like it's not just pushing them down, but she's using it to build herself up as the one who saved everyone or something. Right. Yeah. And just days after she arrived safely in New York aboard the Carpathia, Dorothy began filming her next movie, Saved from the Titanic. <laughs> Capitalizing on that fame. Oh, yes. In the film, Dorothy wore the same outfit that she had on the night of the sinking. Damn. Though she was enthusiastic about making the movie, the filming of Saved from the Titanic was pretty traumatizing for her. I mean, she had to get back on a big-ass boat. Yeah. And they're reenacting. Yeah, you got to use it for the performance. This, like, I, <laughs> I think she did. Uh, they filmed it on a, on a cargo ferry in upstate New York. The film was released on May 16th, 1912, just a month after Jesus. the sinking. They turned these around so fast. Yeah. I don't know how they did it. Moving Picture News called Dorothy's performance magnificently acted and lauded the film's special effects and lighting. The British paper, The Spectator, slammed the film and its star for capitalizing on a tragedy that had like literally just happened. Yeah. They're like, this is grotesque. Like a month 
in those days, that's like an hour after a tragedy happens in these times. Yeah. Like Saved from the Titanic was Dorothy's last film. She was done with the business. The movie would also be lost to history as it was destroyed in a studio fire in 1914. Wow. So there's only like a still right. from it of Dorothy in her little white sweater. Yeah. Going, help. <laughs> Iceberg ahead. Uh, yeah. I mean, who knows? I, I've no, I've, like, I would like to see the movie. I mean, yeah, I would, that, that one I would be curious to see. Right. During the summer of 1912, Dorothy traveled to Europe with Jules Brulatour. So she got back on a boat that summer. They went on a secret vacation together. Jules was still married, and he had not initiated divorce proceedings, as even though Dorothy really wished that he would, and she was engaged to him. I mean, that's sort of, she has a right. (laughs) (laughs) If you're engaged. Right? Please Divorce your wife if you're going to propose to me. I'm beginning to think we're not really going to get married. (laughs) The following year in 1913, Dorothy was in the Hamptons driving the little gray car that Jules had bought for her. Dorothy. The Hamptons in New York. Yes. Okay. Dorothy became distracted while driving and struck a married couple, John and Julia Smith. John was killed. Oh my God. And Julia was badly injured. Now, the car was in Jules Brulatour's name, so Julia Smith ended up suing him. The press from this accident revealed the affair between Dorothy and Jules. Oh. They're like, not only did she kill a guy... She's a harlot. But she's a (laughs) fucking harlot. This resulted in a society scandal. Wow. And Brulatour's wife was humiliated. So she wound up filing for divorce herself. Finally. I mean, I guess he was like, whew. Yeah. Got out of that yeah. one. <laughs> Couldn't make that decision. <laughs> Thank God someone had to die for it. Like, Jesus, Jesus Christ. In court, Brulator told Justice Platzik that he was engaged to marry Dorothy as soon as he was divorced from his wife. <laughs> Why would you admit to that? He said that he professed his love to Dorothy in court. Every girl's dream. <laughs> and the papers were like, uh, not only is this guy who's being sued married but hey did you know it's that actress yeah from the titanic from the titanic the judge asked dorothy if she knew mrs brulator and she sheepishly replied no jules was ordered to pay the widow smith a settlement of forty five hundred dollars damn jules and dorothy did end up getting married but they divorced a few years later in 1919 dorothy was awarded a very handsome divorce settlement oh, though God. so she became a very wealthy woman following this i mean she was already wealthy yeah but, but she, not that she became even more wealthy after they got divorced after that dorothy and her mother left the u.s for europe where they would remain for many years dorothy lived in florence italy and in paris she was done with the states and definitely done with the film industry she was just happy living her life in europe as this like very hot rich chick Mm-hmm. You know, doing whatever she wants. By the 1930s, Dorothy had a new love in her life, Emilio Antonio Ramos. She met Emilio in Paris while he was working as an attache for the Spanish embassy. He was a noted Francoist. Meanwhile, Dorothy's mother was falling in love with another man herself, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> She thought he had some real good ideas. <laughs> what? Yes. So, wait, what's Dorothy's mother's name? Pauline. Okay. Pauline was like, this this Adolf guy. <laughs> he's he's marvelous speaker. <laughs> let's let's hear him out. That's what she said. Uh, Dorothy apparently also thought Hitler had some great ideas as well. And both mother and daughter have been accused of being Nazi spies. Damn. Like they were, their circle of friends was investigated by the British Secret Service. So this is, the, he, she's dating Hitler in the thir- early 30s. No, she's not actually dating oh. him. She's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I meant she's like, she's enamored with him. I see, I see. <laughs> I, I, I was like, Damn. imagine dating Hitler. <laughs> How'd you guys meet? <laughs> Talking about racism at a coffee shop. Right. <laughs> she wasn't actually dating him. Okay, she, I'm sorry. She, uh, but she was like, oh, God, I love that guy. And Pauline would just spout like 
the worst. I mean, look, she had obviously she had some very bad views, and she would spout them. Okay, to anyone look, who would listen. All bad views are spouted, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what exactly what Pauline did. Regardless of whether or not they were actually working for the Nazis as spies, both Dorothy and Pauline Gibson were absolutely Nazi sympathizers and held these repugnant views. If the rise of fascism across Europe didn't bother Dorothy Gibson, something happening across the Atlantic did. The release of Citizen Kane. (gasps) That pissed her off. Really? She was really upset that the role of Susan Alexandra was apparently based on her. Oh. Gossip columnist Luella Parsons said that Orson Welles told her that Susan Alexandra was based on, quote, Brulator and his sad gals. Damn. Yeah. She's like, I'm not a sad gal. Yeah. In the following years, Dorothy abandoned her fascist beliefs. She admitted that she was mostly just going along with what her mother believed. At this time, she befriended an anti-fascist Italian journalist named Indro Montanelli. With her mother's health worsening, Dorothy stayed behind in Italy instead of fleeing back to the States like many other Americans did at this time during the war. In 1944, Dorothy learned that she was going to be arrested and sent to the Fasoli internment camp (gasps) where there were many Italian Jews who were being held waiting to be transported to Auschwitz for extermination. Wait, why was she being transported there? She was she had gotten a tip she was about to be arrested sent to this internment camp because she was collaborating with this anti-fascist journalist. I see. So she had abandoned her Nazi views and now she's in Mussolini fascist Italy. Yes. So she's in she's Antifa. <laughs> Yeah. Or she's like working in that realm now. Yeah, now she's like become this anti-fascist. So they're sending her to this internment camp just for that punish a punishment as, for that. As a political prisoner. Got it. Right. Dorothy attempted to flee, but she was captured near the Swiss border and sent to San Vittori prison. I mean, this is quite a turnaround from being a Nazi to all of a sudden you're collaborating with with I mean, it li- it lends credence to her story that she just was going along with her mom, and it wasn't something she truly was into, right? Because you don't make that extreme of a turn. I think, yeah, you might just drop out. She did like talk later about it that she was. I mean, we'll get into that yeah. later. That she was really embarrassed, but yeah, it was basically like she just did whatever her mom said. Yeah. Um, the mom still absolutely a piece of shit. Yeah, the mom at, is a piece of shit. For, for sure. sure. Um, so with the help of a 22-year-old priest named Giovanni Barbareschi, Dorothy and Indra were able to escape the prison in Switzerland. Oh, they escaped to Switzerland. Right. Father Giovanni Barbareschi went on to be known for his aid in rescuing political prisoners and Jews during the war and bringing them to safety in Switzerland. Though the young priest eagerly helped as many persecuted people as he could, it was discovered after the fact that Dorothy told a fib to get herself on the priority list out of jail. Like, they had this... I mean, look, I don't look too deep into the history of uh, Father Giovanni's, like, how he would get people out of this prison. Right. But basically, like, you had to tell... You know, there was, like, a chain of people... Waiting to get out. Talking and, well, yeah, wait, whatever. And, like, so Dorothy ended up getting out fairly quickly after she was sent there um, with his help. She told the cardinal that she was related to Roosevelt. Oh. So that might have been why she got out. Right. And she's not related to Roosevelt. um, But that's what she said. While in Zurich, the U.S. consulate found Dorothy not guilty of being a Nazi spy and said that, quote, the accused hardly seems bright enough to be useful in such capacity. The dream. (laughs) You're 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 so dumb. (laughs) You're innocent. In 1945, Dorothy moved back to Paris, where she inexplicably moved in with her ex-boyfriend, Emilio Ramos, who was like a Francoist. So I don't know. I feel like she's someone who doesn't really have strong political views herself, but kind of goes along with whoever she's with, maybe. She's kind of a dumbass. Yeah. Look, the the judge was right. (laughs) (laughs) 
The following year, Dorothy died of a heart attack at her home in Paris at the age of 56. After her death, her friend, the Italian anti-fascist journalist Indro, said Dorothy was, quote, stupid as a goat. Damn, what a legacy. (laughs) (laughs) He said that she was very, very gullible, but she did have a big heart. Yeah. So, uh, look, I buy it. I buy it too. Ignorance is bliss. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the story of Dorothy Gibson and her trip on the Titanic. Um, wow. I mean, she died pretty young of a heart attack. Yeah. It must have been such a stressful life. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I think the compounded stress with surviving such an intense disaster and then being a political prisoner after that. I mean, it seems like one of those things is very stressful to go through. Yeah. Like her health did worsen after she left the prison. I'm like, uh, I'm shocked when I realized, I mean, I know this information, but I kind of forget how short of a period they were actually stranded in the water on the lifeboats. Oh, that it was like... uh, A few hours, like four hours? Yeah, it was like four hours. That's not that long. No. Like for some reason, I always think it's way longer because it's like you couldn't hold on. (laughs) I mean, it was freezing. It was below. I know it's freezing because I always forget about cold being a huge factor and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I mean, yeah, it sucks. I mean, the people in the lifeboats were obviously much more uh, safe. Oh, totally. Than the people who were just treading water. Because well, when you're in the water and you're in heavy clothes, probably too. Yeah. I mean, and those people are freezing to death. Especially like, that woman. She's like putting her fur coat on. You're just like, you better hope you're not in the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they those people in the fur coats probably were all on lifeboats at that point. Yeah. Um, but still, I imagine every everyone was told to dress in warm clothing, and then the, if the people who go down with the ship, like they're treading water, you know, yeah, in this heavy clothing, that doesn't keep you warm at that point. And we are going to get into that next week when we talk about the disaster itself, okay, and the aftermath of the disaster, including the hearings yeah. in both Britain and the U.S., where we probably find out a lot of the the information about what went down yes in these hearings right yes so yeah look 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 for that next week okay i will work thank you desi don't forget (laughs) there don't forget we're recording a show next week (laughs) we're gonna record our after show for patreon now we'll see you all for our friday mini episode bye bye hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.